You're listening to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast. We're the business development resource for group practice owners, where we talk candidly about business ownership and leadership. From practice building tips to live coaching to real talk episodes with other group practice owners, we're the resource you've been looking for to help you grow your group practice. I'm your host, group practice owner and entrepreneur, Maureen Werbach. This episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is an online EHR, practice management, and billing software designed for mental health professionals. Therapy Notes has everything you need to manage patient records, schedule appointments, create rich documentation, and bill insurance right at your fingertips. They offer free and unlimited live support seven days a week. Their streamlined software is accessible wherever and whenever you need it. To get two free months, go to www.therapynotes.com forward slash r forward slash the group practice exchange. Need a new accountant or bookkeeper? Meet Green Oak Accounting, an accounting firm that works specifically with private practices. They do all of your accounting needs from budgeting to accounting to bookkeeping and payroll to building your dashboard. On top of that, they can help you set up your profit first systems. Go to greenoakaccounting.com and mention the group practice exchange for $100 off your first month. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Group Practice Exchange Podcast. I'm really excited. I have um, a coaching session today, and I'm on with Carrie Nichols. And we're going to be talking about common mistakes group practice owners make when they start their practice. Hi, Carrie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, It's a little dreary out here in Chicago today at... um, it's noon on a on a Monday, and it looks like it's like five o'clock at night. Oh no! <laughs> um, how are things going in your practice? Tell tell everyone a little bit about where your practice is is at. Obviously, um, you're somewhere in the startup phase, since our topic is on common mistakes that practice owners make when they start their groups. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about you. Absolutely. So, my name's Carrie, and I'm the owner of Cedar Counseling and Wellness. We're located in Annapolis, Maryland. And I actually originally was planning on starting um, just solo practice for a little bit. So, I started, I launched my practice in June, and I just quickly felt like it was time to grow. I had already maxed out my own personal clients. I just had so many ideas that I was excited about. And I knew that ultimately, I loved the team environment. So I didn't want to be solo practice forever. And I put some feelers out there on Indeed to see if I could find people that I thought would be a great fit. And I did. So I decided to just dive in. That's awesome. So you're just a couple months into solo, right? I am. Yeah. So we're on like month three right now. You're, you sound a lot like me starting off. I, I went, I think, four or five months before I put my feelers out. And I hired my first person when I was probably in the six-month mark. <laughs> so super similar, really yeah. similar. Yeah. So you said you found a few people so far? Yeah. So I actually, um, the first hire was a dietitian. She's fantastic. She specializes in eating disorders. And I felt like it was such a natural like complementary relationship between a therapist and her work. So that's awesome. So um, I kind of was thinking of some of the common mistakes that group owners make. And I figure out we can go through some of those and then talk about where you're at in that process or what your thoughts are about some of these uh, mistakes that I, that I see a lot that happening I, a lot for groups. That sounds fantastic. All right. So my first one, which I think is a huge one is um, not seeking legal counsel. 
especially in the age of having Facebook and, and having a lot of information at your fingertips um, and the, in these Facebook groups especially, is I see a lot of not even just group practice startups, but even established groups who uh, look for support, legal support, whether it's through contracts or offer letters or what they should do if a clinician that they have on their team is doing X, Y, or Z, asking those kind of uh, questions in the group versus having someone, uh, an attorney that's, whether it's an employment attorney, if it's an employment-related matter, or um, a business attorney, if it relates to like their entity or their structure, um, and asking there, obviously, because of, uh, for financial reasons, people I see seeking out that feedback for free inside of Facebook groups among, you know, their peers, which obviously can lead to some misinformation, especially when um, each state can have different laws around employment and such. So that I feel like is the biggest one. Uh, The biggest takeaway, especially for startups, even if you want to uh, be frugal with your money or be really conscious about how you're spending, one area to not uh, be thrifty. And it doesn't mean that you can't find an attorney who's really quality, who's not $600 an hour. Um, But really just knowing that part of the startup phase is going to be spending money on um, having attorneys and just ensure that what you're doing is above board when it comes to compensation, when it comes to deciding whether to have contractors or employees, when it comes to what your contracts or offer letters look like, um, that kind of thing. No, that sounds great. Um, Actually, when I was starting up, I found, I think this is how I found uh, you, Maureen, was a checklist that you created for group practices. And one of the big things that that was on that checklist that I hadn't thought about was getting legal counsel. So I asked around in the area um, what other therapists had found a lawyer that they worked with um, who specialized in like business. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was one of the first things that I did. And it's been really helpful and very eye-opening. I am glad I did that. I know there's so many things you learn. And I I, uh, am in contact with my employment attorney probably on a monthly basis, just for random little questions that I have. Um, and it's, I, I, I'm surprised to consistently learn something new about uh, employment law that relates to, you know, something that's going on in my group practice. So it's, it's a really good thing to have in your back, back pocket is an attorney that you trust. Um, and you did it the right way, asking locally and getting referrals for uh, attorney. And this is, goes for anything uh, referral wise is asking group owners locally to you, you're going to get the best um, resources that way. Absolutely. I found in everything, I kind of want someone who knows how to work with therapists in particular because we have special, unique yeah. needs and situations. So, Yeah, I agree. The second one, which I think closely relates to the first one, is um, having an accountant. I This is one of the mistakes I actually made. I, I sought legal counsel from the beginning and I see that not happening often. Um, but I did not have, actually I shouldn't say that I had an accountant, but they just did my taxes yearly, um, the first year. And I learned really quickly that having an accountant who can really have a pulse on your business is equally as important as having legal counsel. And so I kind of evolved and learned that at the end of the day, um, having someone who's doing your bookkeeping, um, so there's a lot of accountants that do can do bookkeeping as well, is, is really important because then they have a full grasp of your financial, um, your financials in your group practice. It can help you 
shift gears or pivot um, before things financially get too disastrous. So I started by having an accountant that just did the end of year books at the first year and learned quickly that I owed more in taxes, obviously, than I had saved and was like, oh, I need to have, I need to be more prepared. I need the, uh, someone who can check with me and, and, and know, you know, every quarter. So I, this person then started doing it quarterly um, the second year. And I learned that, uh, that it, they're able to have a little bit of a better pulse than yearly, obviously. But at the end of the day, when you have so many moving parts, and this is true even for a small group practice, having someone that can be on top of the financials on a monthly basis where you can see trends that are going up or down and, and shift even more quickly than on a quarterly basis is so important. And so that would be kind of my related to the first point, uh, second point. No, I'm really glad you said that. That's actually something that I need to do. Um, I similarly just was planning on having someone do my yearly taxes. And I think that would have worked okay if I'd been solo, but I'm realizing now that finances are so much more complicated as I'm like rolling out to and expanding. So I will put that on my list to do this week to finally connect with my accountant and let her know that we need to adjust those expectations and and more often. One of the things I was going to say is, you know, ask your accountant if they also do bookkeeping. You know, there are many accountants do both. And that's really the piece that I find important is that both of those things are able to be done and bookkeeping is uh, something that tends to be done on a monthly basis. And then, you know, what's nice then is you can talk with that person. And and this is what I do with my accountant. Um, I use Julie at Green Oak Accounting um, and they specialize in doing accounting for solo and group practices, uh, mental health practices. And um, we meet every month. I think we have our meeting tomorrow and we talk about you know, she lets me know what she's seeing. And I essentially have a financial dashboard that looks like little um, gears on a, like behind the dashboard in a car um, that are red, yellow, and green. And each, each section um, from operating expenses to my pay to payroll to taxes, each have their own gear that says uh, if I'm in the green, the yellow, or the red. Obviously, the red being either I'm usually it's, it means that you're overspending in that category. And it's nice because um, without digging too deep myself, I can just click on it, look at it, and see the health, the financial health of my business in a few seconds, and then have that conversation with her about what what do I need to do to shift those gears a little bit, whichever you know gear needs to be shifted. Um, and that's where, where I really think that the benefit financially, com- financially comes in to having an accountant slash bookkeeper is that they can action plan with you, not just track the metrics and the data, but also say what things can you do as, uh, as a business to shift some of these metrics into a better direction. I really love that. I think that would be really great to have somebody who's more actively working with me instead of just tracking all of my expenses and talking to me about taxes. So that sounds good. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is something that starting practices feel like is a longer term goal, something that they do as they get a little bit larger. Um, But I find that so many mistakes that come with, and I'll be bringing this up is um, in a future, one of my points here is uh, how they pay their teams. They often find that they, they're either overpaying their staff 
we're underpaying on taxes. And so what is really nice about having someone that is really on top of the bookkeeping aspect and, and action planning with you on a month-to-month basis is that they can help you avoid making a financial mistake you know, before it even happens. So when you're bringing on your first person to say, I'm thinking of going you know, the IC route, independent contractor route, and I'm thinking of giving 60%, let's say, um, they can they're going to ask questions around the numbers. What does 60% look like in a dollar term? Are you planning on offering anything else and and so forth? And they can paint a picture of what that looks like in the future. Um, what I see often happening is practices who really have like such beautiful visions for when they bring on their first few people of paying them really well and um, and then finding out along the, the road as they bring more people on that it's not a sustainable amount and then having to have the conversation of restructuring um, the compensation, which is obviously a hard conversation to have. And so um, that's one of the big reasons why I find having an accountant um, who does bookkeeping as well, they're able to see you know what you're planning to do on the financial aspect and say, hey, this doesn't look like it's going to be feasible in the long term if you look at this you know data that I've put together. Um, you know, when you get to three or four clinicians, you're, you're going to notice that you have to pay more uh, admin costs and that's going to eat up, you know, what profits you have. I suggest starting out, you know, $5 less or 5% less. Um, so that makes perfect sense. No, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. I'm sold. (laughs) sold. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that was easy. Um, and then related to that, um, I mean, they're all sort of related to each other is um, I was talking about, you know, bringing on your first people. The other mistake that I see is people bringing on contractors initially. And not that bringing on contractors is in and of itself uh, a mistake because there are businesses that can do can do it and they do it well. Um, where I see it being a mistake is that they, for practices that bring them on, either in states where the contractor status is really just impossible. There's some states that have, um, more strict laws than the IRS does around what constitutes a contractor or an employee. Um, as an example, California is one. And, um, or they um, bring on people as contractors because it feels like the easier choice to make. And obviously starting a business is really hard. Just the thought of bringing on a new person or um, having clinicians or a team of clinicians can feel overwhelming uh, from a business perspective. And so what I see is a lot of group practice owners who start out by bringing on contractors because they feel like it makes all of the decisions and all of um, everything that's happening just slightly easier, or at least it feels that way. Um, and then they quickly notice that they need to transition them to W-2s either because it doesn't work legally in their state or it doesn't work for how they want to run their business. Um, and that's obviously not the easiest shift to make. And it's a shift I made. Um, I had contractors for probably six, my first six months or so uh, until I talked with my employment attorney. And she was like, like I said, you need to have W-2s. You want to provide supervision. You want to have a cohesive team feel. You want to be able to oversee things. Is not possible with a contractor um, status. And I ended up having to make that shift probably six months into having clinicians. Um, And so it's something I bring up a lot is, being really intentional about having contractors or having employees and making sure that you run your business in a way that can align with the contractor status. Um, if that's what you're wanting to do. 
No, that's really helpful. Um, and I guess that goes along with what you said about making sure that you get an attorney, right? So they can kind of help. Yeah. Have you yeah. thought about what your, what? Yeah. Your- so my attorney actually recommended the IC. Um, mm-hmm. So independent contractors. And I kind of need to talk to her more and help, maybe have her educate me on like why that was her, why that yeah. was her inclination. So well, and- that would be nice to know sort of what we're thinking long-term. Yes. See, and that's the thing too. And it's really hard, especially as you're starting off to even think what does your business look like in the future. Um, and that's not to say that you can't shift if, if that's the way it has to go in the future to, to W2s. You know, like I said, I've done it and so many of us have had to do it. Um, but one of the things I would do is when I'm talking to my attorney is to say, you know, what is it? And this is where having a business plan and writing one out, even if it's just a sort of a half-baked one, can be helpful. Um, because it gives your your attorney a general sense of where you see your business going in the next couple of years. And that can help guide um, that decision. Because oftentimes, practitioners, clinicians who bring on their first one or two clinicians have this um, notion that they're going to be sort of hands-off. Like, I just want to bring someone on and let them be them. And I'm going to provide them all of these things so that they can do their best work. But I don't want to control them. I don't want to do it. Um, There's the sense because uh, essentially, you know, most of us haven't been, uh, you know, some of us have been solopreneurs, but we haven't been entrepreneurs who have had to manage a team. And so it feels very daunting to do that. And so the best step we take or we think we're taking right, when we bring on people is to say, we'll be, we're going to sort of be hands off. We're going to bring someone on. Um, we're going to let them do their own thing. Um, you know, I don't want to control too much because it feels like the safest way of bringing someone on. Um, and then you quickly realize for a lot of us that you, it's really hard to manage a, a lot of aspects of the group practice when you can't control it. Um, And so that's where I ask people to really think, is it that you're wanting contractors right now? Because, um, and I hear this a lot, people will say, you know, I want contractors for now, but in a year or two, I'll I'll probably switch to W2. And I always ask, why, why do you know this already? And if you do know this, why are you not starting off with W2s? Because you're going to give yourself a harder obstacle, or you're going to give yourself an obstacle later when you want to transition people from contractors to W2. And so you know, that's something to think about is do you, is this like a placeholder uh, position having contractors? Um, and, and is there a plan in the future for you to switch? And if that's the case, I would think seriously about why that's happening. And, and is there, is it related to a fear of um, really truly owning the business and owning the decisions and, and having a little bit of control? And if that's the case, you know, there's things you can do to work around that or, do you truly envision your business being like a hub for independent clinicians who own their own solo practices to kind of connect inside of a common space as contractors? Um, and is that kind of like this longer term vision that you have? So that's something to think about. Yeah, definitely food for thought. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And I'm going to be thinking about it for sure. <laughs> um, so going along with the idea of ICs or W2s is, Um, a mistake I see is people not knowing who their ideal clinician is. Um, and I have a worksheet. If if anyone Googles ideal clinician, the group practice exchange, it'll be the top thing that shows up. Um, but essentially, and is, is that when we are first starting out, bringing on our first few clinicians for most of us, 
we've probably never hired someone before. We've likely never worked in a place where we were doing the hiring. Um, obviously, it's not 100% the case, but most of us haven't. Um, and so the idea of the process of recruiting and hiring a clinician um, is going to be new. And so for most of us, we go off of our gut instincts, we go off of our feelings. And sometimes we also go off of, um, we bring people on when we like the way the conversation's going, but not necessarily what that specialty is for the clinician or the hours that that clinician can work or the license that that clinician has. We, we are more likely to let go of some of the things that we were hoping for because we had a good interview and that person was easy to talk to and they seemed to be someone who would be nice to be around. Um, and that in the long term um, can sometimes cause issues when once that person's onboarded and working there, uh, your goals don't or envision don't align with theirs. And so um, the idea of really knowing who, just like we have ideal clients, knowing who our ideal clinicians are is really important. And things like, you know, personality, specialty, hours that they can work, days that they can work, um, whether they align with your practice's culture and values as a whole, um, maybe some things that you are requiring outside of seeing clients, um, whether it's requiring marketing or requiring them to do speaking engagements or trainings, um, really knowing the whether you want someone fully licensed or not. This, this is something that happens often is, um, you know, provisionally licensed therapists will apply to um, positions that say you need to be fully licensed. And I've seen this time and again, where group owners, especially new group owners will be like, you know what, I don't, I don't mind, you know, I, I, I'm getting so many provision licensed therapists applying and I'm not really getting any fully licensed therapists. And they get a little afraid that they're not going to find a fully licensed therapist. So they bring um, the provisionally licensed therapist when they haven't really fully thought out if having a provisionally licensed therapist aligns with their long-term plans. There's a lot that goes into it. There's supervision. Um, there's a lot of time commitments on, on the supervisor's end, which usually is a group owner in the beginning. Um, and there's a different way to market uh, when you have someone who's provisionally licensed. So really knowing who your ideal clinician is is helpful because then it keeps you kind of on the straight and narrow with it so that you don't veer off too far when the interviewing process comes. Yeah, that's super helpful. I actually, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And I did, I, I used your ideal clinician worksheet and your interview questions and those uh, that helped so much make sure that whoever I was speaking with, I was uh, being intentional about what I want to bring on. Um, I think my worst fear is hiring out of desperation, like because yep. I need to hire. And yep. so I wanted to make sure that like I'm hiring someone mindfully and intentionally, like making sure that they, they align with my goals. But yeah. And, and I think if you are starting off that way, you're going to be in a better position than, you know, 75% of other practice owners who are starting off because that's not the perspective that they're coming from initially. Um, oftentimes people end up hiring out of a, either a desperation or fear that there isn't going to be a better therapist that's going to come along. So they just accept what comes. Um, and that's, that's detrimental to the, to the group practices. Uh, growth and uh, its values and, and how it's seen in the community. So I'm, I'm glad that's something that you're thinking about. Um, and what goes along with that is, a, is this mistake of um, hiring too fast and firing too slow. Um, 
like I said, people make bad hires. Um, and it's not, it's not 90% of the time. It's not because the therapist is actually bad. It's because the interviewing process wasn't done well enough. The, the person who was interviewing was not clear enough. Um, they say like, what is it? 80% of people who leave, leave because of bad leadership, um, which can be kind of, uh, it can kind of hurt or, or burn for us group practice owners who are the leaders. Um, but I find it to be like some, I find it almost inspirational to know that because then it, it holds me accountable to making sure that I'm doing my best. And so when they say that, um, you know, most people who do leave a business leave because of bad leadership, that could mean a lack of leadership because the group owner is also seeing a hundred clients and trying to, you know, get the clinician filled up that they don't have enough time to onboard them or accurately train them. It could be um, that the group owner or whoever that person is that's bringing people on is bringing the wrong fit of people in. And so those people who come in don't connect to the business the way they should, which is on us. You know, the people that we bring on, if they're not a good fit at the end of the day, um, is usually on us. Uh, obviously, there's a small portion of people who are amazing at their interview and then are very different when they come in. But for the most part, if you um, follow, and I, I we use this in our business, is the um, Ideal Team Player book, the idea of hungry, humble, and smart. I don't know if you know about that. No, I haven't heard of that. No. I'm going to have oh. to look that up. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you in, I did the training a couple, I think it was last month's training. Um, on onboarding people and, and questions to ask. And uh, one set of questions is based off of that book. And essentially they say the ideal team player in a business, in any business, are employees who are humble, hungry, and smart. Not smart brain smarts, but like smart in terms of interpersonal communication, um, being able to na- navigate uh, relationships within a, within a workplace, that kind of smart. Wow. And so yeah. there's questions around... Um, how humble are they? How hungry are they to, you know, because especially in our, um, in the group practice industry, a, a lot of things that are expected are, you know, a minimum amount of clients being seen, right? We, we expect, you know, if when they get hired, they, they need to see 10 clients or 20 clients a week. Um, and if someone isn't hungry, they're going to always fall short. And it's going to be a person you're constantly going to have to go back to and say, hey, I keep giving you clients. You're not seeing them more than one or two sessions what's going on here? Or, you know, you're always three clients short, even though we have, uh, we're referring clients out. Um, and so that's going to tie into hungry. Um, someone who's lacking in humble might, um, you know, not jive well with other uh, clinicians in the practice or might, um, you know, have issues with you as a leader and have uh, authority issues. Um, or in, in the smart category, uh, might be someone who's um, completely oblivious to the culture of the practice. And so I really, you know, aside from um, the common questions that we ask related to clinical skills and all that other stuff is this hungry, humble, and smart. If you, if you bring someone on who meets all three of those, um, you're, you're more likely to have someone who fits in with your, um, the values of your business. Wow, that's really cool, and definitely gonna read that book. Yes, it's a good <laughs> one. Great. Yeah, um, 
And then my uh, last one is doing all the things, the group practice owner who does all the things. And this is so common, obviously, as you're, as a person who starts off in group practice, they tend to be wearing all the hats. Um, and although it's something that might be happening initially, it needs to be something that's on the forefront of every group owner's minds when they're starting off is how can I delegate? How can I either eliminate something that's not important for me to do, um, simplify a process that I'm making overly complicated and spending too much time on, or you know, delegate to someone else so that I can do what my area of strength is. So um, I see so many group owners um, who go a year or two not taking any time off, still seeing the full their full caseload, and not delegating anything, answering the phones, uh, scheduling the appointments for their cl- clinicians, doing the billing still, um, and that's just a recipe for burnout. So the clinicians or the group owners who find spaces to you know either eliminate or simplify processes so that they're spending less time doing those and delegating some things out fare much better than those that uh, are doing it all themselves. I feel like you called me out in a good way. <laughs> I feel like you see my life a little bit. Yeah, it's been it's been nonstop and I can already catch myself needing like I need to I need to slow down. I'm constantly foot on the gas. So are you what's what's something that you can just in a sort of holding you accountable sort of way here uh, where everyone can hear it and we can call you out later and see how you're doing <laughs> on it. Is there something that you, that is like comes to mind right away when thinking about this topic that you can. I think that on? the, I, I think, I think I had three that really came to my mind. Number one, social media. I'm like burning out big time on that. Oh, yeah. um, number two, the, uh, the, um, the accountant, how you said that they can do bookkeeping as well. That would be really nice. And then um, I've contemplated getting a virtual assistant to do like uh, scheduling and taking calls. And that might be really, really helpful right now. So that for me, that was my biggest stress reliever was um, getting someone to answer and schedule the phones for me. Um, It was a weird dynamic that I had with myself. When the phone would ring, I would be simultaneously excited because it means that we're doing something right, that the phones are ringing and that I can potentially fill a clinician's caseload. Um, but also in, uh, at the same time, I would have like my stomach would drop and I would have dread when I wasn't at work and the phone was ringing. And when I was with my kids or when I was in the car and I was like, Oh my God, I don't, I don't, ha- I don't have a computer open. And then I, I just had this like dread of, Oh my God, they're going to leave a voicemail and then they're going to move on and go to the next person. And it just was this I don't know. I had this simultaneous dread and excitement that just was driving me crazy. And so when I decided to bring someone on super, super part-time to just take that away from me, um, not only were they able to better schedule appointments um, because clients weren't trying to schedule with me uh, and I wasn't the one answering the phone saying, yep, no, I don't have any availability. But um, it also freed up not only, you know, when you're starting off, you're not spending that much time on the phone every week. Um, so it freed up a little bit of time, but it freed up a ton of mental space of me, like just needing to feel like I'm always on. Um, you know, because even when I'm at home, I was like, well, I'm not working, but I need to have my phone by me in case the phone rings. Cause I don't want to let that call go to someone else. Cause people typically go down the line 
And exactly. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly my fear that if I don't answer or don't get back to them immediately, that will, you know, we'll lose potentially a great, a great client for our practice. Right. And so that's why I had this dread because I was like, if I was in the office, it was fine. But anytime it was a weekend or it was like nighttime and I was driving to Target, I remember pulling over, I had two phones so I could pull up therapy notes on one phone and answer <laughs> on the other. And it just was like all, all to just have this client not go move on to someone else. Yeah. It was like too stressful. And so that shift actually created the most peace of mind for me, even though it wasn't taking away an inordinate, inordinate amount of time from me. Um, but I also found that they, you know, I, I was, I had made a good hire with that and I was able to see the return on investment really quickly, even from a financial perspective, because they were actually, um, transition, converting people, uh, from potential clients to clients, um, better than I was because they were able to answer most calls as they were coming in. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah. <laughs> that would be helpful. <laughs> so um, I, I, I think that should be the thing that you take away from this specifically is, um, is, is delegating at least one of those things in, in the next couple of months. Um, I don't think you need to be jumping into all three of those right away. That can be overwhelming, although I know people who can do that. Um, but I get uh, from a person who likes to kind of be in control that it can be hard to let go. Um, so even if you can think of one of those things to shift to someone else, um, you'll get, you'll get a good, big relief. And it sounds like for whatever reason, the social media one is, is creates more anxiety for you than the other two. I don't know if I, um, was getting the feeling off or or whatnot, but I felt like you, you said the biggest thing was the social media. So maybe that needs to be the thing to go. Yeah, that might be, I feel so tied to it. Um, yeah. It just takes, it's more time consuming than I've realized it would be. So yeah, because you gotta, you have to think about what to post and you have to exactly. think about what image you want to go with it and what content you want to write with the post. If you're tagging things, if you're hashtagging, if you're, um, you know, time of day that you're going to put it up and then responding to comments and sharing it to other platforms. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It was really, really helpful and I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. Like what you heard? Give us five stars on whatever platform you're listening from. Need extra support? Join the Exchange, a membership community just for group practice owners with monthly office hours, live webinars, and a library of trainings ready for you to dive into visit www.members.thegrouppracticeexchange.com forward slash exchange. See you next week.